You may be seated. Morning, church. If you're a guest with us, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor here. I always like to say, I hope you feel quickly at home. Hope you feel connected quickly and that you get to know somebody around you. I asked a guest who's been visiting over the last month, you getting to know anybody? And they said, no, not yet. And so I just want to encourage us to be, uh, to be on the lookout for folks that are new. And if you're, on the, if you're new, don't hesitate to make yourself known. We'd love to get to know you. If you're a first-time guest, though, then you should know it's been a challenging season over the last month at Glen Ellen Bible Church as we've wrestled with a difficult topic, that of racial equality, justice, and unity. In fact, I'd like to take a moment and acknowledge just how difficult the last few weeks have been for our church. I'd like to acknowledge it by saying, church, I know and feel the frustration that many have around this topic. I know it's been a hard season for some of you to stay engaged at Glen Ellen Bible Church. The discussion on racial equality and justice and unity has required and will continue to require a lot of work. And it's not been easy. I'm so thankful for the diligence that so many have demonstrated in this season. And I have appreciated your willingness to enter the dialogue with me, with the leadership of the church, and to wrestle together with what I've shared from the platform. I realize that some of the perspectives that I have shared on the topic, as well as some of the application points that I have made, have been difficult for some of us to hear, and that some have not agreed with my perspective or my points of application. And I want you to know that I cherish your perspectives and that I'm growing because many of you have shared those perspectives with me, your thoughts and feelings, and I thank you for your care of me as I've done my best to care for the congregation. It is a tremendous privilege to weekly open God's word and to share what I believe he's laid upon my heart. And I daily pray for the Lord's care of us in that process, that process of preaching preparation and preaching delivery. I do not take the privilege lightly. I want you to know that I love being a part of the pastoral staff of this church, and I love this church, which is to say I love serving. It is a delight to serve this church. With that in mind, let's press on in Deuteronomy. Let's open God's Word together. Let's see what He might teach us. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 1. <clears throat> It is the fifth book in the Bible, fairly easy to find, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We started this new sermon series last week in chapter 1. We'll finish chapter 1 this week. The title of the series is The King and His People. The title comes from a theme that runs throughout the book in which God is the king of his people and he's establishing Israel in the kingdom, that is the promised land. Of course, from our New Testament perspective, we know that Jesus is the rightful king, ruling over not only Israel, but all of creation. And as we explore the, the book of Deuteronomy together, we'll discover our king is faithful, Jesus is good to us, and good not only to Israel, but to all his people. He's faithful to his people throughout all time and space. And our posture is the posture that Chuck uh, 
prayed us through this morning. We're, we're praying your kingdom come in our lives individually, in our lives collectively. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God still has a kingdom perspective, and we serve the king as citizens of his kingdom. I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. Moses is reporting on events that took place 40 years prior. And he's reviewing some of Israel's history in hopes that they'll not repeat past mistakes. And God uh, preserves this story for his people this morning, uh, praying that we'll not repeat some of the mistakes of this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 19. Then as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb, and we went toward the hill country of the Amorites, through all that vast and dreadful wilderness that you've seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, you've reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected 12 of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshgal and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, here's the report, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Folks, this morning, it is still a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Our inheritance in Christ is good. He's with us. We'll pause there for just a moment. If you were with us last week, again, remember that the setting of this book is Moses and the people of Israel on the east side of the Jordan. They're staring into the promised land, getting ready to go over, and he's revisiting the law, and he's revisiting some of their history in preparation for the invasion of the land that they're to take. Again, Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. The first four books of the Bible uh, tell the story of Israel's origin, uh, their formation as they came out of Egypt, their exodus, second book of the Bible, exodus, right? And then Leviticus, who they're to be in the wilderness as worshipers of God, numbers, they're wandering in the wilderness. Here we are, Deuteronomy, poised to enter the promised land. After exiting Egypt and receiving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, which in Deuteronomy 1 is called Mount Horeb, Moses retells in today's passage how they walked north to Kadesh Barnea. Map is on the screen, Horeb or Sinai is at the bottom middle of the map. The route they take is north to what is um, identified as Kadesh. There they're poised, or were poised, 40 years prior to this morning's reading for their first consideration of entering the promised land. Poised to enter it for the first time, the Lord was going to give them this land, but they balk, we'll learn, in disobedience. Rather than going up immediately into the promised land, Moses reminded them of how they wanted to send spies in to check out the land, 
to get a report of what the land was like and what they would meet with, what routes they should take and what they would meet with as they go into the land. Of course, I wonder how often we hear clearly from the Lord the obedience that we're to be about in life, but we first want to send spies into the land, as it were. Is it going to be a good land? What route should we take? How should I accomplish the obedience that God is calling me to? Will it be difficult? What will we meet with in a life of obedience? How many times do we do a risk-reward analysis when obedience is clearly before us? And of course, it's not wrong to count the cost. Jesus, in one of his parables, even encouraged counting the cost of discipleship. That's not wrong to do. It might actually be wise to do unless in counting the cost, we're actually reflecting a heart's posture of hesitancy towards obedience. And now, our eagerness for obedience or our hesitancy for obedience is something that only God would know. Sometimes I have trouble even knowing my own heart, right? The heart is deceitful, we're told by scriptures. So it can be hard to understand when we're doing the risk-reward analysis and when we're doing the cost-benefit of obedience, whether we're looking for ways to accomplish obedience or looking for back doors to avoid obedience. Ever calculate the tax benefit of charitable donation? Not to better understand or to maximize one's generosity, but rather to avoid growing in the grace of giving? Ever count the cost of being cheerful and generous in giving and decide, well, the tax benefit of it is in competition, right? And hold up the tax benefit of giving as a constraint to cheerful and generous giving. Another example might be standing on the edge of a group and listening for the political signals that the group is giving off. I think we've probably all done this to one degree or another. Rather than listening with an ear towards sharing who Christ is to us, how tempting it is to stand on the edge of a group, listen for political signaling so that we can fit in. Perhaps even editing our conversation so that we don't ruffle feathers. We all do a risk-reward analysis, or at least we're tempted to count the cost when it comes to obedience. If, in fact, you find in yourself a constant posture of weighing the risk-reward when it comes to obedience, let me encourage you to come forward for prayer this morning. Tim and Sarah March will be down front after uh, I'm finished preaching when we go to responding in song. And, man, we can be free from that risk-reward analysis. We can, in fact, charge into obedience. If the risk-reward is reflecting a hesitancy or even an unwillingness to follow God as he's calling us to, allow someone to pray for you this morning so you can run wholeheartedly. We'll learn later that Caleb was wholehearted in his desire for obedience. Let's continue in verse 24 here. So the report was that it was good. The land's good. Next words out of Moses' mouth, verse 26. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. What's our perspective? 
of God's disposition emotionally towards us. So he brought us out of Egypt, they said, to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. God actually has evil intent. Where can we go, they complain. Our brothers have made our hearts, that is the spies that they sit into the land, have made our hearts melt in fear with their report. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there, which is a a generation of giants. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt. You've already experienced this before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. A beautiful image of familial compassion and care. All the way you went until you reached this place. God carried you as a dad would his boy. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God. In spite of the evidence of God's care for you in the wilderness, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night, pillar of fire at night, outside the camp of Israel, in a cloud by day, to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. So the spies report that the land was good. It's a good land. And they report It's full of giants and cities that are fortified, heavily fortified with walls up to the sky. In short, the promised land is going to be a great place to live. You have no chance of conquering the peoples there. There's no way you're going to be successful if you go into the land. And so they respond, where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They're overwhelmed by the report. And so they decided to disobey God. He says, Moses says, they're unwilling to go up. They rebelled. In fact, so overwhelmed were the Israelites by the report of the giants in the fortified cities, they conclude, in fact, that God's not for them. They go into their tents. There they sit, and they spin a negative narrative about how God hates them, in fact. They believe that God brought them to this land, they say, so that the Amorites and the Anakites could devour them. Maybe some of you have felt or currently feel as though God hates you because life is difficult. It's interesting that that's the narrative that Israel spun in the face of difficulties. Even though Moses spent some time rehearsing how God had demonstrated his love for them in the difficulties they they faced in the wilderness, providing for them at night this pillar of fire and a cloud by day to lead them so they know where to camp and which way to go. Moses described their relationship with God as that of father to son, a familial, a caring relationship. But nothing he said could change their mind. They rebelled. They refused. This morning, if you feel that God hates you because of the difficulties in front of you, consider the gospel. Just because there are difficulties in front of you does not mean God isn't with you. In fact, we know that for Israel, God had brought them to a good and difficult land. God had actually led them here to give this land to them. 
although it would not be easy. This land he had brought them to had giants, in fact, the Anakites, had fortified cities, and he wanted them to have its wealth. I had a friend who once was fond of saying, I'm sure he still says it, God loves you and has a difficult plan for your life. How many of us have probably heard the the phrase or the quip, God loves you and has a great plan for your life? You know that all three are true. God loves you, has a great plan for your life that will be difficult. God had brought them to this good land full of difficulty so they could experience his continued care of them as a father cares for a boy. The evidence that God loves us is in the fact he sent his son to die for us before we were even born. Paul says that while we were yet sinners, God sent Christ to die for us. While we had no interest in him, he demonstrates his love for us. So when looking at the circumstances of life and the difficulties of life, remember Christ. If you feel God hates you, Remember Christ, who's the evidence of God's complete love for you, his mercy for you, his provision in this world that's full of troubles. In fact, again, I would encourage you, come forward for prayer. There's no reason for us to be stuck believing God hates us. And some people labor, they live under that cloud. It's easy to stand in judgment of Israel asking why they didn't believe when God had over and over again shown them his love for them in miraculous power and that he would, in fact, fight for them as their backs were against the Red Sea and the Egyptians are bearing down on them. He parts the Red Sea and they walk through on dry ground and they watch as he swallows up their enemies. And then he carries them, miraculously feeding them in the wilderness with food that dropped from heaven. How many of us are worried God won't meet our financial needs? He feeds them for 40 years in the wilderness, miraculously. It's easy to stand in judgment of Israel, but I wonder how many of us wrestle with a similar mixed report. God loves you this morning and has a difficult plan for your life. The land is good, but it's difficult to possess. Great place to live, to be with God in Christ, I wonder, though, how many of us respond to a mixed report balking at obedience. It's an important question to ask in that the report is still mixed this morning. Walking with Christ is a blessing. It's the wisest way to live. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He's caring for us by his spirit and power on a day-to-day basis. But the kingdom has not yet fully come, folks. There are significant hurdles to living by faith today. God's with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He goes before us. He fights our battles. But life on earth for God's people is difficult at times. Frankly, there are still giants in the land, whole cities, whole nations, who hold a worldview that is foreign to Scripture. Those worldviews are fortified ideologies and philosophies that are contrary to a Christian worldview. How will we ever endure to enjoy the inheritance of heaven? 
Can we persevere and see, our, see victories in this world as we make our way through life? Is God really going to fight for us and deliver us? Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. John 16, 33. In this world you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. We're surrounded by troubles. Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome all that's in this world. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Anything we face in the world, Christ is greater. How will we maintain our marriage vows, some may be asking. With all the distractions and the difficulties that are present in the current cultural climate, Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome all that you are meeting with. How will we remain pure if single? Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome the world. How will we raise our kids to know and honor Christ in a dark world? world. Paul, I think it's Philippians 2.15, calls this reality a, a warped and perverse generation. And that was 2,000 years ago. How will we raise kids to know one honor Christ when so much in the culture is coming against children to undermine their innocence and derail godliness? Christ says, take heart. Take heart. I've overcome the world. How will we overcome the slander of colleagues? We have people in our congregation who are slandered at work for their faith in Christ. How will we endure chronic illness? People in our congregation suffering with chronic illness. How will we support aging parents financially? Deal with anxiety, depression, mental illness. Take heart, Christ says. I've overcome the world. The report is still mixed. What will we do? Will we live by obedience? Or will we shrink back and refuse to live a life of faith, refuse to lay hold of the promises of God? To live by faith will require a confidence that God is good. I always say that the, the two big questions that everybody must ask and answer is, does he exist, does God exist, and is he good? Once you answer those questions... And if you answer them according to the gospel, yes, he exists. His goodness towards us is demonstrated in Christ. Then you are set up to endure, to persevere, to know joy and peace in the midst of tremendous hardship and difficulties. Let's continue. Verse 34. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, no one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors. Except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, he'll see it, and I'll give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on. Why? Because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Lord, would that we would be wholehearted. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me, Moses reports also, and said, you shall not enter it either. But your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him because he'll lead Israel to enter it. That's the book of Joshua. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your prophecy that I hate you and have brought you here to devour you and that your kids will be consumed by these enemies, that will not, in fact, come true. I'll show myself to be good and loving. They will enter the land. 
I'll give it to them and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around and set out toward the desert along the road to the Red Sea. God's gracious, rather than refuse entrance to the entire nation because of the willful disobedience of a few, God determines that Caleb, Joshua, and the next generation will enter the promised land. I mentioned the little ones whom the older generation thought would get consumed by their enemies. They'll actually enjoy their inheritance. At the same time, there are certainly going to be consequences for those who were disobedient, as well as for those in relationship with the disobedient. You know that the effects of sin are a community experience. The children of the disobedience were dragged around in the wilderness for 40 years while their parents endured, and they endured with their parents, the consequence of their parents' sin. There are always negative consequences to letting doubt and fear keep us from living obediently. And our children and our family and friends and the community suffers when we act in doubt or with fear and refuse to live in obedience to God. The good news is there are also positive consequences to a life of faith. Those positive consequences also have a good impact on family and friends and children in the community at large. To put it most simply, to quote Paul, we reap what we sow. If we sow to the Spirit, that is, in obedience, we reap life. If we sow to the flesh, in disobedience, we reap death. I mentioned earlier that today's story is a review of actions some 40 years earlier. The the original detail of what took place is in Numbers the, the, uh, chapter 13 and 14. I'd encourage you to read it later today. Two of the 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb, they're going to get to enter the promised land because they were wholehearted. They were the only two of the 12 that said, we can do this by God's strength. Or in other words, God is able. He's got our back. Let's be obedient. Here's the report from Numbers chapter 14. The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord's pleased with us, he'll lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he'll give it to us. We're not going to do this by ourselves. You don't walk, Christian, under your own strength, heaven forbid. The obstacles in front of you, what God calls you to endure, he's eager to empower you to endure. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land. Don't be afraid of, what, of the culture around you. We will devour them, Caleb reports. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. What's the nature of our testimony? I'm not saying that we can't privately express doubts and fears. We most certainly can. There's no expectation uh, from Scripture that we would be perfect in this life or that we wouldn't be overwhelmed or that doubt and fears wouldn't creep in. We can certainly, in fact, that's why we call people for prayer, (laughs) for, for prayer. We realize that there's a battle that's raging. That's why when Chuck prayed, he, he prayed through the armor of God, the armor that's given to us to, to fight the good fight. We realize that doubt and fears are a real temptation. But what about publicly? 
It's fine to commiserate with family and friends about how we're struggling to make decisions of faith. But what is our public testimony? Beyond confiding in close friends and family about personal struggles to live obediently, what are we saying publicly about God? Are we saying that he hates us and he's led us to this difficult circumstance to drop us? Or in wholehearted affirmation like Caleb and Joshua, are we saying he is able? It's easy to make a little chart of comparison. I've made it for us. It's on the screen between Israel and Caleb and Joshua and how different their postures were. The Israelites are unwilling. Caleb and Joshua, they're eager. Let's do this. We got this. Israelites are resistant. Caleb and Joshua are are encouraging obedience. Israelites are grumbling. He doesn't like us. He hates us. They've gone back to their tents. Caleb and Joshua are defending God, assuring the people of God's love. The Israelites are fearful. Caleb and Joshua, they're, they're, they're faith-filled. They're not saying it's going to be easy. They're saying that God is with us. They're determined to trust. Come forward for prayer if you want your testimony to change. If, if you want to confess, man, I, I've got more doubt and fear coming out. I'm overwhelmed by the circumstances than having my eyes on Christ. Let somebody pray for you. There's no reason to be stuck in that, in, in that place. What a blessing it is to know that whatever we meet in this life, God loves us, and we can be certain of it, certain of it, certain of it because of what he's done for us in Christ. All right, so the Israelites failed to act in obedience and enter the land. As a result, God gives them a new command. He tells them in verse 40, turn around, head back into the desert. So now they have a new charge. They don't like that charge. Let's see how they uh, respond. Verse 41, Then you replied, We've sinned against the Lord. We'll go up and fight as the Lord our God had commanded us. It's, it's basically, oh! So it's either fight with the Lord's help in the promised land or go back into the desert. No, 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 no. We'll, we'll go into the promised land. Folks, how can I get our attention? Obedience is always an easier yoke and a lighter burden than disobedience. I pray for my family, my kids, almost every day, and for this congregation often, that we would know the easy yoke and the light burden of obedience, and that he would spare us the crushing yoke and the heavy burden of disobedience. Then you replied, we've sinned against the Lord. We'll go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it's easy to go up into the hill country. But the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up and fight, because I'll not be with you. You'll be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. So they've confessed, and their ears are still closed. Did you know it's entirely possible to confess, to see your sins, to own your sins, and still not be in a position to obey? Still not be ready to obey? 
still have your ears closed to the message of obedience. You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance, you marched into the hill country. They're going to try and do it on their own. The Amorites who lived there in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees, and they beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent there. Confession and obedience are two different elements of one activity. Repentance. And they both need to be present to receive God's blessings, to know his power, to know his provision. The Israelites realize they sinned, they've confessed, but they've not determined to act obediently. In fact, their ears are still closed to what the Lord's telling them to do next. They don't like their consequences. And so it leads them to further disobedience. Confession is necessary but insufficient for what the Lord longs to give us the blessings he longs to pour out on our lives. Confession is necessary but insufficient. And if you find yourself stuck confessing sin repeatedly without changing behavior, then you might have closed ears like the Israelites. You might have a hard heart. You might be arrogant. Verse 43 Whatever's going on, you need to say to the Lord, I've got the confession piece down. I need the obedience piece. Help me in my situation. Give me the gift of repentance. Did you know repentance is a gift from God? It's not something we work up. It's not something we muster up. He wasn't going to give them the land if they just tried harder to white-knuckle it. That's clearly obvious today. He wasn't going to give them the land. It wasn't something that they were supposed to do. It was something he was going to do through them. Folks, obedience is the same for us today. In God's paradigm, spiritually speaking, nothing has changed. The grace of God has to be poured out upon us for us to turn from our wicked ways, our sin, and embrace obedience. Jesus himself said, apart from me, you can do nada. Nothing. So if in your life you've, by God's grace, come to the place you realize the sin present in your life, well, praise God. But if you're stuck from moving from uh, confession to obedience, cry out to God, move me. Move me for your glory and my own good. Don't leave me under the crushing yoke, the heavy burden of disobedience. Because it's not going to go well for us in that spot. We won't know the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and the the self-control that God has for us. Cry out to him if you're stuck. God who is merciful will give you the gift of repentance. Guaranteed, that is a gift he wants to give. Guaranteed. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask for your goodness to us in Christ. Right now, let your Holy Spirit's light through your, your Holy Spirit's breathed word.